0: Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Solutions Project, the podcast where we get to know health industry innovators who are working to improve cost, quality, and health outcomes, and enhance patient and clinician satisfaction. I'm Don Siemens, and today I am talking with a healthcare maverick who wants to teach everyone, and I mean everyone, how to be an entrepreneur, Marcus Whitney. Marcus, welcome to the Healthcare Solutions Project.
1: Hey, Don. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to do the show with you.
0: I'm excited too. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Marcus is the CEO of Health Further, a strategic advisory firm working with healthcare organizations to help them navigate disruptive change. He's also the founding partner of Jumpstart Health Investors, the most active venture capital firm in America focused on innovating in healthcare with a portfolio of over 100 companies. He's also the author of a new book, Create and Orchestrate, scheduled to be released on June 30th, and I also need to mention that he's the co-founder and minority owner of a major league soccer team, Nashville Soccer Club. Marcus, I can't wait to see your team play my hometown team, Real Salt Lake.
1: I can't wait to see that either. I hope to get to see it in Salt Lake City someday.
0: Yeah, who knows when that's going to happen, when soccer will actually be played in front of fans again. Exactly. Well, when you're in Salt Lake, we ought to get together. Uh, Like I said, I've been looking at getting you on the program for a few months now. You're active on the Nashville healthcare scene, which is a major hub for healthcare companies. You're an entrepreneur and a consultant, and you came highly recommended as a good interview. You have a new book coming out this month, and I thought it would be great to talk about entrepreneurship in healthcare. But in between emails, George Floyd was murdered, and protests rose up around the country, and a few weeks ago you wrote an open letter to the leaders in the Nashville healthcare industry calling on them to express solidarity with the black people of Nashville. And I'd like to quote from that letter. You wrote, I say with firm conviction that the Nashville healthcare industry's success has roots in white supremacy, and its leaders have to make a commitment to internal anti-racist work a priority. Doing this work is necessary for the future of this country and specifically the future of Nashville. To put a finer point on it, black people in America, and especially in Nashville, can't achieve equity until you do this. What spurred you to call out healthcare leaders, Marcus?
1: Um, well, it's uh, it's probably important for your listeners to know I'm black, um, so okay, uh, you know that would at least sort of give me some context. Sure. Um, and also that I've been in and around the healthcare industry for only five years. So I, I'm generally speaking an outsider. I didn't come up in it. Mm-hmm. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with the leaders of the healthcare industry, but that is largely based in my experience and expertise in innovation. Mm. Um, through the work that I do with my venture fund and my partner Vic Gatto, at Jumpstart, um, and also work that we've been doing through Health Further and my partner Steve Trematier there over the last five years, that is what has given us access to leaders in the healthcare industry. Um, and so, because I'm not on their on their payroll, um, I didn't come up through their systems. Mm-hmm. It's very easy for me to look objectively at the industry and to see how incredibly powerful it is, both throughout the country and especially in Nashville. It's the number one uh economic impact industry in the city Mm. um and to know just how sweeping the power that that industry has and then when you look at the leaders of it it's almost entirely white
0: Mm.
1: um and the implications of that are pretty significant as they would be in any organization where the organization is very powerful and its influence on not only the people in the organization, but in the communities it serves is significant and the leadership is homogenous. The inability to empathize, even if you wanted to, the inability to empathize, the inability to appropriately advocate and the uh, the failure to prioritize the the needs, concerns, and, you know, quite frankly, crises that black people face um, is a systemic problem. So I called it out because the moment called for someone to call it out. Hmm. And uh, I found myself in a position where I was maybe one of very few people who could do so and feel uh, reasonably safe that they weren't going to face any retribution.
0: Sure, sure. What what kind of response have you received? Uh,
1: The response has been significant. So uh, a couple of key general sentiments that I've received back. One, uh, many people saying thank you for saying what needed to be said. Um, So obviously, uh, this was not something that only I recognized. Um, Then there were a, a bunch of people who framed it as courageous and brave. And I don't disagree with that, but I thought the number of people who use those words was a little startling because it it sort of points to the idea that speaking out um, to powerful people is something to be afraid to do because you could lose things. and uh, that that to me just showed that the the enorm- the enormous power that any group has has to be coupled with checks and balances. Mm um, you know, power has to be checked. Uh, otherwise it can, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, uh, do a lot of harm. Right. Right. And, and so th- those were sort of the two key, uh, sentiments that I received back, generally speaking, people very, very positive. Um, you know, and I I've got a series of ongoing conversations now with leaders in the industry. And I would say mostly what they are centered around is them wanting to move to some form of action and me trying to uh, slow them down to better understand the problem because I know they don't fully understand the problem. Mm. And so we're we're sort of in that dance right now.
0: Well, I'd like to hear what your perspective is on better understanding the problem. Can we dig into that well, a little bit? It,
1: sure, sure. I mean, the, the 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 problem is America's problem with black people, which stems back to the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so you know you're talking about the, the 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 theft and enslavement of 12 plus million people, um, you know, centuries ago, and the the practice of slavery that was built into policy, built into the the culture of this country, mm-hmm. and is uh, indetachable from the economic prosperity that this country has enjoyed. So that's that's sort of very problematic. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the last, let's just call it 150 years, which has been not slavery, but segregation, oppression, um, other forms of, of policy that could be seen as akin to slavery, you know, the 13th Amendment. Um, and generally, just if we just fast forward to today, the snapshot of the power uh, distribution in this country Cannot be separated from the roots of the of the country when it pertains to to slavery. So, um, you know, when I look at the leaders of the healthcare industry, uh, it is overwhelmingly made up of white people. And um, and even where there are other people of color, you know, black people are are probably going to be the the ethnicity least found in in true positions of leadership. Hmm.
0: I've been in the healthcare industry for 20 years. And from my perspective, I live in a state that really doesn't have a a high minority population. The highest minority population here is probably Hispanic. Next is probably Polynesian. And then it's black. And uh, and, in the companies that are owned within this state... um, it's definitely a white majority of leaders there. I've also worked for a larger organization that's based in Minnesota, United Health Group. And uh, in my interactions with that, more African-Americans on the boards, uh, within the leadership teams that I was actually able to work with personally as well. But, you know, overwhelmingly white Um i would be interested to uh delve into this a little bit further. You asked for a commitment to do internal anti racist work. What do you mean by
1: that? well anti racism is a um is a term that has risen in awareness over i'd say probably the last ten years mm. um, which the the point of it is to take people out of a position of indifference um mm. And to move them into a position of action. So um, there's it's there's a big difference between being indifferent to racism, and I and I think most people would say that they're not indifferent. But if you looked at their actions, and if you looked at how they use their voice, it probably leans towards being indifferent, hmm. um, as opposed to being anti-racist, which is um, working against racism wherever it it exists. Um, so that's, that's, that's taking an active position. And so I would say, generally speaking, the healthcare industry has been indifferent to it, Hmm. meaning it's got some relatively toothless, uh, diversity initiatives. Um, but nothing that sort of forces it to take a hard look in the mirror, uh, do data analysis and make decisive actions against that data so that is um that's what i was really calling for you know i was i was highlighting that the board of the healthcare council is overwhelmingly overwhelmingly white look at the companies that make up the representation of the board if you look at their executive teams they're going to be overwhelmingly white one of the things i brought up was that the healthcare venture capital world Mm -hmm. here in nashville which is a world that i'm uh you know I participate in. I'm basically the only um, black healthcare venture capitalist in Nashville. Hmm. Um, there are many healthcare venture capitalists in Nashville. Sure, yeah. Um, and then you start looking at the companies that they invest in. So you know, you've got you got this issue that's that starts with leadership, which is board and executive level. Um, but then it starts to influence things like talent development, and succession planning. And, uh, you know, where investment dollars go, which then starts to impact vendor diversity and procurement, um, and you know, before you know it, all of the the, the wealth generating or or power accumulating uh, positions are you know primarily held by by white people, and this this is a real problem because healthcare is the you know the largest industry segment of the GDP. It is always the number one issue uh, for every election. So you know, it, it, health systems you know. Across the country, are the number one employer um, in most towns in America. So, you know, it's it's a big, big deal, right? It's a big deal that that an industry that uh, not only is so influential, but also um, captures such a significant percentage of of the American tax dollar, mm-hmm. um, is and ultimately is is in place to serve the entire population. Uh, does not have power. Uh, does, does not have its its power distribution or its its wealth accumulation structures set up in a way that reflect the uh, that reflect the people of the country.
0: Okay, so this is the healthcare solutions project, right? So I am looking for solutions to healthcare's problems. That's that's what I, I love to talk about. You talk about getting the data and then making decisive actions against that data. What kind of decisive actions are you envisioning?
1: well, um, the four the four areas that really matter to me are leadership, talent development, vendors, and investment. Those are areas that I would like to see uh, rigorous data analysis done in, um, long lines of 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 race and and gender as well. but but right now, I think I think we appropriately have the conversation focused on on race. Um, I'd like to see that done. and then i I'd like to see some statement and commitment uh, that then turns into action plans that'll have timelines, goals, milestones, budgets, and measures of accountability to shift the needle on in, in all four of those categories. And, you know, quite frankly, any initiative would be significant because what's there right now, And and I'm not, I, I don't want to poke at what's there right now, but if I just look at at the results, hmm. if I just look at, okay, well, who leadership, if I just look at who gets investment dollars, sure. I mean, it black people are like, basically, statistically zero. Hmm. Um, and I and, and look, I've done most of my work in, in Nashville, but Nashville's big enough. I mean, you're talking about, you know, 45 plus billion dollar economic impact to the city. So that's huge. That's, that's, that's big enough for me to start with. Right. For sure. Um, you know, it's, in 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 those categories um probably with the exception of talent development i'm sure that there are probably some reasonable talent development initiatives but you know when you get to leadership and and board and and uh and investment those two areas in particular it's like like people pretty much zero Hmm. um so any initiative would move the needle from there right yeah um that's that's really what i mean but again like you know we have to get on the same page about what the issues are and 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 is it systemic or does it just happen to be you know what does it mean what does it mean for the industry to have this be the case um and also say that it's a meritocracy and i'm not Mm -hmm. saying that they are saying that but i'm saying if, if one were to take the position that it is a meritocracy, mm-hmm. then my, my question would be, so are you saying that white men largely are, um, just consistently better? <laughs> hmm. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's where the, that's where the question of, of, uh, you know, that, 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 that's where the question of, of anti racism comes in, um, the, the need to actually take real action against uh, the, the systems that that are perpetuating this situation.
0: Hmm. You, you said that you feel that doing this anti racist work is important for the future of Nashville, and for the future of our country, and you're, you're speaking to the healthcare system. Can you connect the dots there? Why is it important for the future of the city as well as the future of the country?
1: So uh, to work back for the country, you know, black people are dying twice as often as white people from COVID-19. And that's just um, an exacerbated stat that reflects general healthcare statistics for black people and white people. And it's really not even just um, healthcare, you know, across the board, black people get more of everything that's bad and less of everything that's good. Um, So, you know, household net worth is, you know, depending on who's doing the math, somewhere between, uh, you know, 1 seventh to one tenth of, of a white household. Um, Health access, repeatedly worse. Um, mortality rates for uh, black women uh, in pregnancy is significantly higher than white women. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you just kind of go on and on and you say, well, this is really sort of a, a crisis state for black people. But when you don't have any Black people advocating that it's a crisis state at the top of the healthcare industry, it just becomes the accepted norm. Um, it's just this is just the way that it is, uh, which is what's happening right now. So um, this is why you have to have Black representation at the highest levels. This is this is exactly why. Um, and so that's that's sort of the country view on the city view the leaders of the healthcare industry here are so incredibly powerful. So they are, um, they're they're rich and rich people are philanthropists when they're good people and the, you know, and th- these are good people. These are, look, the, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not letting anybody off the hook, but these are still like my friends. Right. So yeah. um, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that, that these people are malicious or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I just think they, they inherited positions of power in a system that um, harbored racism as one of its core underlying principles. Um, but these people are in positions of of power, they're wealthy, so they lead the philanthropy efforts in the city. Well, what does that mean? That means they get to say which organizations receive the, the most support and which causes get the most support. And, you know, um, that is reflected in, the state of Black people in the city—you um, know—our organizations are, on the whole, doing worse. Um, our neighborhoods are on the whole doing worse. Our schools are on the whole doing worse. Um, our our healthcare facilities are on the whole doing worse. So, that's, you know, economics touches everything, and healthcare economics especially touches everything. And so, yeah, that's that's how I that's how I draw the the, the connection.
0: You mentioned that the industry harbored racism as one of the core underlying principles of its founding. Are, are you referring to Nashville, like the HCA tree of of organizations, or are, are you thinking of racism as a problem within the entire system?
1: Yeah, so I I, I would say it is the entire system. Um, but look, I mean, I think one of the things that I, I've, I've been trying to do is help people understand that at the time that HCA was founded, and this is not me pointing fingers at the founders of HCA, it's just trying to take everybody back to that era, right? Mm-hmm. Just to kind of understand at the time of the founding of HCA, um, you know, we were, having serious serious racial tensions in the country uh it was 1968 it was the same year that martin luther king was assassinated it was the same year robert kennedy was assassinated it was um you know it was the same year here in nashville that interstate 40 ripped through north nashville which was the the thriving black neighborhood um Mm. the thriving black business district um and literally like, like tore right in the middle of it. Um, and, and so you just have to sort of understand that the industry was founded on this company that was founded in a time when no black person could have ever founded that company, you know, and that, that didn't just end in 1968, like that, that continued, you know, to even, even today we're dealing with, uh, we're dealing with trying to get a bust of the founder of the Ku Klux Klan removed from our state capital. And, you know, I don't see the leaders of the healthcare industry saying, hey, this actually could be a serious mental health issue for Black people <laughs> who have to go into the state capital or want to feel like they actually belong in this state. So, you know, that's what I mean. I mean, this is the South. We You know, we 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 have we have a history of deep racism, you know, and, and, and the entire country does, right? The entire country does. But in the South, it's a particular brand of racism, right? It's, it's sort of steeped in, um, it's steeped in the Confederacy, it's steeped in, uh, you know, a deep affinity for slavery and, um, and, and white supremacy. And, you know, the Ku Klux Klan was founded in, in the state of Tennessee. So this is just, it's just American history, right? It's not like, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Um, But it doesn't help to ignore these things.
0: I want to come back to this, but I'm going to shift gears a little bit in the subtitle of your book, you call yourself an unlikely entrepreneur. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, so um, I was not raised around entrepreneurs. Um, I Look, the, the it, probably to qualify it a little bit, uh, it's, it's really sort of an unlikely entrepreneur in the business lines that I'm in. Um, I dropped out of college. I was into hip-hop music, and when I moved to Nashville 20 years ago, I was waiting tables. So um, for me to be 20 years later uh, doing strategic advisory in healthcare and venture capital and uh, being a minority owner of a pro sports team, you know, it's 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 pretty unlikely um, that I would have landed in these positions. So that's that's really what I'm referring to there.
0: What was it that attracted you to the healthcare industry?
1: Uh, necessity, honestly, mm-hmm. um, necessity. I would say uh, I I was trying to create a successful early stage venture business with my partner, Vic. And we did did a typical tech accelerator from 2009 to 2014. Uh, Just to give some context, in 2009, we were one of the first 100 accelerators in the world. Um, Hmm. And we were getting deal flow from all over the world. And uh, we got the original Techstars playbook to work with. We were the first accelerator in the state of Tennessee, Uh, maybe even the first accelerator in the Southeast. I don't know that I can 100% verify that but it sure seems like we were that early Hmm. and you know by the time 2014 came around there were maybe three or four thousand accelerators (laughs) uh, around the world so the market became completely saturated and we realized that if we wanted to continue to invest in early stage companies with the kind of model that we had in place we wouldn't be able to keep just doing tech deals um, mostly because we wouldn't get the best deals and we couldn't even really help them that much based on Nashville strengths. So we started to just think about what what is core to Nashville where we have an advantage, and it boiled down pretty quickly to either healthcare or music. And uh, we just felt that healthcare was a uh, a bigger industry and a bigger market, bigger market opportunity. So that's where we landed. Um, and I started my education in earnest of the healthcare industry October of 2014. I really didn't know much about the industry, how healthcare worked um, prior to starting a healthcare venture fund?
0: Well, I think it's fabulous that you're to the point where you are and you're successful. You know as well as anyone in the way that you've studied healthcare and probably the way that you've experienced healthcare that the industry is full of problems. You know, Costs are ridiculous and in terms of quality, the value for what we get based on what we spend, it doesn't add up. And clinicians are unhappy and patients and their families definitely aren't happy how are these problems impacting the black community?
1: More so, right? Um, you know, um, if you take all those problems and you just throw some multiplier on them and that's, that's how they impact black people. Um, that's, that's kind of, you know, part for the course for black people in America. Um, so I think that it's, it's all of those problems. And then, The lack of advocacy the lack of appropriate clinical trials for pharmaceutical drugs um, appropriate clinical trials for uh for methods for therapeutic methods um lack of access to care um lack of access to good food um on and on and on you know all, all those problems plus plus more you know the the general uh incentive model that does not uh that does not help the industry move towards actually helping people be well but simply you know performing procedures generally speaking you know um don't get me wrong like i i i I love the industry there's there's amazing people in it but the incentive model is wrong and i think you would agree with that and i think you know the reason why many clinicians uh are not happy is is for that that very same reason Mm -hmm. um you know, the incentives are not not set up correctly. And those things have a really big impact when black people don't even really have access to the kind of capital to to, to pay for the procedures to work them way to work themselves through to the to the well being piece because the industry is just not designed to help people be well um, outside of procedures.
0: Okay, so here's where I want to try to connect the dots a little bit. You've written a book, Create and Orchestrate, that I am really excited to read. It comes out on June 30th, but I have already read the chapter that's available online. I want to try to connect the dots between... Awesome. Yeah, it's a great book. Great uh, great start, anyway. I want to try to connect the dots between what you. you wrote in the letter to the Nashville healthcare leaders and what you wrote in your book. So here's a quote from chapter one. You say, I see a future where... Most of the world's population believes they can be entrepreneurs and have the tools to do so. This era of rapid change, important problems to solve, and democratized access to technology makes that future possible. So, can entrepreneurship, in your opinion, provide solutions to some of the problems black communities are facing? And I'm hoping you can answer that question both generally and in relation to what healthcare is going through.
1: Yeah. So, uh, obviously for me, the answer is yes. Um, I believe that America's fundamental, um, cultural system, even more so than democracy is capitalism. Um, and I I believe we've even sacrificed aspects of our democracy for capitalism. Hmm. And so entrepreneurship to me is a, necessary skill if you really seek to solve some of the big problems in America. Um, now, you know, entrepreneurship does not exist in a vacuum, right? You, you many times entrepreneurship requires uh, policy work um, in order to change the rules of the game by which you're building your business or building your enterprise. I think that's true. But uh, the the rigor that forces you to take a problem try to come up with a solution and put it through um the the stress of being sustainable is exactly the skill that entrepreneurship affords you and i think that that is an important skill for all sorts of people to get you know i think i i don't think that it's just for people on the outside of the system i think many of the people on the inside of systems you know would have a better chance of making change if they ran them through a true entrepreneurial filter Mm -hmm. um and understood everything about them how they were going to change culture how they were going to be operationalized um certainly how they would impact finance um you know how they would service these new initiatives that they want to do too often um Solutions to problems are, are crafted in the academic way where they don't have to stand up to the real world rigors. Um, and uh, that's that's when that to me, that's when no change happens. Right. It's like you can write a really great paper. But you can't actually launch it. And then the, the other thing is entrepreneurship mm-hmm. requires risk, usually like personal risk. So someone has to be able to put their own money, their own time, their own, re- their own reputation on the line to try to see something through and um that's that's what that's what's required to really make change um there's I've never met an entrepreneur who hasn't failed because that's kind of built into the model you, right. you have to be willing to fail to actually do it so um yeah, I mean, I believe very strongly in entrepreneurship uh not as a silver bullet, but quite frankly as a as a required life skill, if you want to be someone who actually brings viable solutions to the table.
0: Okay. That, that makes sense on a general perspective. Let's talk about it from healthcare's perspective. How does entrepreneurship help solve the core problems in healthcare?
1: So it's one of the, the best reasons why entrepreneurship matters is because healthcare is so incredibly complex. So, um, a lot of people waste their time coming up with solutions. And th- this this was like, uh, I think this is part of the reason why I've been able to learn healthcare so quickly is because I came at it from the perspective of venture capital. Um, and not just like any venture capital, but being the most active venture capital firm in the country. So, you know, I've seen thousands of pitches over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've seen thousands of ideas and thousands of business models and mostly, what I've learned is all the reasons why those ideas and those business models—not all of them, but the you know the majority of them—wouldn't work. And as you go through that process of hearing an idea, getting really excited about it, but then understanding why it won't work, that gets you closer to understanding exactly what will work um, and mm-hmm. what things are viable. And healthcare is two to three times as complicated as any other market in America because it's completely illogical the way that it's set up. (laughs) You know, there's a triangle around the patient. The patient isn't the payer. Um, the, the, the payer has these weird contracts where they're not even really clear with the patient, what they're, what they're getting for, what they're paying for. Um, it's, it's just a mess. Uh, and, and, you know, an entrepreneur has to has to always understand the value network that they're trying to disrupt. So that that's sort of like an old Clayton Christensen thing. Yeah, right. So um, so entrepreneurship, I I believe, is even more important in healthcare because it helps you to really understand how problematic the system is. You know, as you as you go through. All the all these great ideas, and you realize exactly why they won't work. You know exactly why there's so much stagnation. You eventually start to get to a path of understanding exactly what does work. Um, you also understand that some things simply have to be moved at the policy level, um, because again, healthcare is a different kind of industry. It's highly regulated, mm-hmm. um, and it's not just highly regulated, but the 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 menu of of services and and prices are largely set by the government. That's just not true in any other industry. I mean, sure. um, or or most other industries, I would say. Um, it's it's uh, it's just really really strange. So, I think when you're dealing with an industry that has such a significant level of uh, regulation, government intervention, and abnormalities as as it pertains to who pays versus who receives the benefit it's even more important to be entrepreneurial because you will be dedicated to understanding the value network before you try to before you try to bring solutions to it
0: so another quote from the book the premise of create and orchestrate is that creative power is accessible to us all it's part of being human now that term creative power is something that you used a lot when you wrote the first chapter at least can you define that just a little more and answer how you think creative power is an answer to the challenges that we face.
1: Yeah, so creative power to me is kind of the the, the underlying human energy that uh, that manifests as entrepreneurship, right? It's like entrepreneurship is about people, you know, creating businesses, starting businesses, launching businesses, running businesses. Um, but creative power is like that spark that's behind it right um that we all have it's this idea that we can make the world a better place and then it's it's the actual energy that we use to make the world a better place um and it's inherently creative right it's it's uh it's coming from within us where we bring something new to the world we make something better so you know, I feel that entrepreneurship is a in when, when I'm talking about creative power, I feel that entrepreneurship is like a way of life for someone who wants to constantly be tapping into their creative power because that's that's what it requires. Um, it requires you to constantly uh, invent, to innovate, to think, to uh, to imagine, to envision um, and then to execute. You know and that that's sort of where the power part comes from to to then execute. i I generally think about um, creative power having pillars underneath it. Um, those for me, those pillars are well-being, innovation, drive, and entrepreneurship, and mm-hmm. then openness. Um, and I feel like if you look at any really, really solid entrepreneur, uh, they generally are really, really good in at least three of those of those pillars, you know, to have all five would be like ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but those are the five that I think are are really important for, uh, for entrepreneurs. So that that's what I mean, when I say creative power. Love it.
0: Marcus, why do you think that entrepreneurship may be lacking in predominantly black communities?
1: Uh, so several reasons. So one, um, it is, it is uh, generally a an apprentice based, um, skill set. So it's usually passed down, um, as a, as a trade because it's pretty complicated actually. Um, one of the things I, I, I document in the book is something I call the eight core concepts, um, which are to me, the, the, the eight concepts that you have, you have to understand, you have to have a pretty solid grasp on if you're going to be an entrepreneur, Um, you don't have to be great at, at, them all, but you have to understand them and you can't uh, ever sort of abdicate your responsibility in any of them. Um, And those are leadership, finance, operations, growth, product, service, sales, and marketing. So if you think about those eight concepts, there's a lot in there. And um, generally speaking, great entrepreneurs were sort of raised around other great entrepreneurs. Hmm. So in the black community, You know the problem is that we have things like black wall street where Mm -hmm. we created great black business communities and they got you know burned down bombed and massacred um or we have nashville where we had a great black business district and they ran i-40 through it and they destroyed all the businesses Mm -hmm. so you know we we've had we've had a shorter window of time within which we were actually allowed to participate in the economy um where we owned ourselves. And then even within that period of time, there were these like, you know, attacks on what we had built sort of over and over and over again. And so you don't have lineage. You know, if you look in, in, in so many, I mean, you know, th- th- there's all these iconic white families in Nashville that have multiple generations of entrepreneurs. Um, you know, that's a lot, we're not completely absent of that in in, in, in Black Nashville, but it's harder to come by and and that's that's just a that's just hard that's just really really hard so i think you know we don't have models and we don't have mentors um like like other communities do we don't have access to capital those are policy issues um that people are now starting to learn about redlining and and quite frankly just other laws things we were not allowed to do by law um so we don't have access to capital um and largely you know credit worthiness is very subjective quite frankly um so, you know that's that's sort of another big issue. Um, and then we just don't necessarily have people telling us that like this is something we can do, that we should do, that is very empowering, that um doesn't require all of the credentials that uh, have to be validated by a third party. Mm-hmm. So you know these are these are the kinds of things that uh, that I'm hoping my book can can be a part of contributing to really really you know I didn't write this book for for, for black America I wrote this book for America because I, I feel that there are marginalized communities of all colors in America that are um, suffering from socioeconomic challenges and I think entrepreneurship can be uh, an incredible skill to help it's not it's not a like I said it's not a silver bullet policy is always going to be a big deal um, but certainly you know if you're asking me specifically about the black community, yes you know I, I really want to um, both be a model um, not as th- I'm the way to do it but like I am a way you can do it hmm. and uh, and and do as much as I can to 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 teach what I've learned because I, I learned by doing I learned you know by making a lot of mistakes and so, so there's no reason for anyone uh, who's interested in learning from me to have to make the same mistakes I made
0: well, Marcus, let's talk a little bit about how you did it, right? You've you've been doing this for a good long time. You focused on healthcare for about five years. How did you get into the VC business, and what do you think made you as successful as you are?
1: Well, my success is still uh, in process, um, but you know how how I did it was I am self taught. So the very first thing that I that I did from an economic mo- mobility perspective when I moved to Nashville and I was waiting tables six and a half days a week was I taught myself how to code. I, I would go buy books um, from borders when we used to have bookstores right. and I would take them home and I had an old gateway PC. And, you know, in my spare time, I, I was learning websites. I was learning JavaScript, HTML, flash technology, which is no longer a thing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I taught myself how to code. And after eight months of that, I got my, I got, a job as a software developer. and because I, I knew that uh, the web was was on the rise, and I had heard that you could get a job as a programmer without a college degree if you actually had the skills. So um, that was sort of my first hack that i that I leaned into. And then from there, um I spent seven years in the software industry, sort of worked my way up to a head of technology um, position. and, Started to transition into more management skills, and then I used the, that experience to launch out and do my first venture uh, seven years later. So all that's all that's in the book, but um, that's that's how I did it in terms of how I broke into venture capital. Uh, you know, it was it was mostly trying to be an apprentice to an existing venture capitalist. So you know, who is now my partner, um, my my partner Vic. He was he was at a different firm. He wanted to experiment and innovate in venture capital uh so he looked for people to help him with jumpstart foundry when it was just a tech accelerator and i poured myself into it i you know i spent as much time and energy as i could helping him um you know the, the value i brought was i was a technologist he needed that person so um i brought those skills i worked for free um for five years you know um And at the end of five years, when he decided he wanted to leave his job and do it full time, uh, he gave me forty percent of the company. So that's that's how I got, that's how I made my break. Wow, that's incredible. So let's
0: talk about uh, the companies that you're funding right now. We've talked about the three big problems in healthcare: are cost, quality, and satisfaction. Can you share some examples of how the businesses that you funded are helping to solve some of these problems?
1: Yeah, you know, um it's it's so it's so sad, right, that um the businesses that I would say that have done the most work in those in those areas probably are not drastically helping patients. But I will mention one company uh that I think is pretty inspirational in terms of what they do. So we have a company in our portfolio called Bell, and they started out as a concierge company for Um, beautification so massages pedicures manicures sort of things of that nature Mm. and it it was actually much more of a health and wellness business than an actual health care business but then one day they they were on one of their you know client visits and they were doing a a foot massage and and a pedicure and the person who was doing it realized that the person had sores on their foot and so they they knew what that meant and they said hey you know you really need to get into the doctor and it ended up saving the person from getting their foot amputated Hmm. and so they realized that this um this procedure that people see as a benefit as beautification so they don't mind it, it doesn't feel like a healthcare um, visit, can actually prevent uh, diabetic foot ulcers from resulting in people needing to get toes or maybe even the entire foot amputated. And so um, they have which cuts costs and certainly improves quality and satisfaction. It sort of hits on all three of those things. Mm. Um, So that's, that's just one of those really simple innovations that it's, it's simple, but it's not obvious. Um, And is, has just been a win, win, win. It's a win for the company. It's a win for the insurance companies and it's a win for the patients. Um, And so that's, that's a company that, that we, that we love. Love it.
0: Marcus, if you are looking towards the future and making healthcare work better for all marginalized communities, as you've mentioned, what gives you hope?
1: Um, you know, I I believe at the end of the day that the healthcare industry is full of really great people. That's 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 been the best thing about the last five years. Is you know before this, I was in digital marketing, and I got to tell you, like digital marketing. It can be pretty vapid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it can be just a, a really depressing space where people are just using people's data to sell them things they don't need. Or, right. um, you know, in the worst cases, it's like the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was working in that space for a long time. And, um, you know, I can't say that a lot of the people in that space were good people. Um, in healthcare, even though we have so many problems and different ideas about what's right and how to solve those problems, Largely, largely the people in this industry are really good people and and uh, want to do the right thing. And I think we got a good view into that, uh, you know, in the early days, weeks and months of of, uh, this pandemic,
0: Hmm.
1: um, just in terms of what these people are really signing up to do for their communities and, and, you know, broadly for the country. I think that. as the conversation gets more honest and more people are allowed to have the conversation there's a high degree of likelihood that the the leaders of this industry will make moves in the right direction um such a big part of changing the industry is the government that's probably where i have the lowest expectations and i'm least optimistic mm-hmm. is no way to really change this industry the way that it's structured without significant legislative change. So that's where I'm, I'm low in my optimism, but for the industry itself, the people in the industry, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that, um, that, that they will, um, rise to the occasion and, and, and change things for the better. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. I feel that
0: way too, Marcus, the the people that I've worked with and interacted with over the last 20 years have made me want to stay in this industry so you're one of them too marcus it's been a pleasure to chat with you and to get to know you a little bit better and your perspective appreciate the time and your willingness to talk about tough subjects if our listeners are interested in your book or in your vc work what's the best way to get in touch with you
1: Uh, These days, I would just direct everyone to go to MarcusWhitney.com and um, please sign up for my newsletter. And I just kind of put everything in there. Um, If you go to my website, right at the top, you'll see uh, information about my book, Create and Orchestrate, uh, which you can find on Amazon and, you know, also my own store. So, yeah, I would just send people to my website, MarcusWhitney.com.
0: Perfect. Well, thanks again and best of luck. Keep up the great work.
1: Thank you, Don. I appreciate it.